Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. Barbara Jo Jenkins' three-year, 3,000-mile walk across America with her former husband became one of the most popular stories in National Geographic magazine. Barbara co-authored The Walk West, which became an international bestseller and part of the permanent White House Library. A non-fiction blockbuster, it sold 15 million copies, became a Reader's Digest condensed book and was chosen as one of the most influential bestsellers related to American culture in the last 100 years. Barbara Jenkins' new book, So Long As It's Wild, is her untold and long-awaited story, revealing how she experienced the famous walk across America, from her impoverished upbringing to her high adventures, followed by the crushing aftermath of the walk and her struggle towards newfound courage and strength, So Long As It's Wild, is her story. Welcome to the podcast, Barbara. Oh, thank you. That's quite an introduction. <laughs> oh, I always feel like, I mean, I've cut so much out. I feel like I could do an hour introduction. It sounds like such an interesting life you've lived. And thank I you so much. I have a very epic life. Epic. <laughs> Clearly, because we've got all these books about it. And I will add <laughs> my endorsement from Hilary Swank and Dolly Parton and say, what a wonderful book that's come yes. out. Thank yes. you so much for writing that. <clears throat> Well, thank you for reading it. <laughs> oh, and can you just take us back to the beginning? Because this all starts with this walk across America. What was this guy doing walking across America? And how come he ended up being your husband? And how did you get involved? Well, I am a storyteller. And I'll be telling you stories throughout this podcast. I was working on a master's degree in New Orleans. And this young man showed up on campus and he had walked from New York to New Orleans, and his name was Peter Jenkins. Well, we met, started dating, fell in love, got married. And, of course, during the courtship, he wanted me to walk the rest of the way across America from New Orleans all the way to the Pacific Northwest, 3,000 miles. Now, who signs up for that? Who <laughs> says, oh, yes, I want to do that? How old were you at the time, Barbara? You're, you're in your twenties. I was in my, my mid twenties, mm. so I was young and always had a love of adventure. I grew up in the Ozarks of Missouri. The Ozarks, for your listeners in the UK, the Ozarks are a mountainous region in the middle of the United States, and it is a very uh, poor part of the country. And the people who lived there were called hillbillies. So I grew up as a hillbilly in the Ozarks of Missouri. And I was very poor. We lived in a little house, a little four-room house. We had an outhouse out back. We did not have an indoor toilet until I was about 12 years old. I took a bath in an old aluminum wash tub, my mother would heat the water and pour the water in the tub. So I grew up poor, and I didn't know I was so disadvantaged, but I grew up poor. 
which basically I never had the feeling of being entitled to anything. So when I started walking across America, it was an easier transition for me than it might have been for another woman because I had I had learned to be resourceful and to do without. So sleeping in a tent and not having conveniences was not that much of a stretch for me. So we started, excuse me, we started in New Orleans and walked all the way to the Pacific coast in Oregon. That journey was 3,000 miles and we walked 15 to 20 miles a day. We slept in a tent at night. I carried about 35 pounds on my back. Peter carried about 75 pounds. We, Jansport was, is an outdoor company. It was a newly formed company at that time. And they supplied us with all of our gear. So we had the best outdoor equipment known at the time. So we walked across Louisiana where we trapped alligators. We walked across Texas where we were caught up in uh, thunderstorms and tornadoes and deserts. We walked across Colorado where I was. we were attacked by outlaws in the southeastern region of Colorado. I fell off a 13,000-foot glacier in the Colorado Rockies almost to my death. The backpack saved you in that that incident. We yes. there were a few times where this this backpack saved your life, but yes, the backpack <laughs> that JanSport backpack saved my life <laughs> more than once. Yes, and um, I'll never forget as we were crossing Engineer Pass, the winds at that elevation were, you know, 70, 80 miles an hour, and my whole face was covered in scarves and sunglasses and a hat. It's a tiny little trail, ice trail along the the top of the mountain. And my foot slipped and I went sliding like a bobsled down the edge of that glacier to a sheer drop off, maybe a 2000 foot or, or much more. And I would have surely fallen to my death, but my backpack got lodged in a a break or a crevice in the ice and it saved my life but there are so many stories great adventure stories of walking across america this walk was from 1976 to 1979 and when we finished the walk in oregon a little town called florence hundreds of people came out to walk the last mile with us The only living grandparent among us was my grandmother. She flew to Oregon to walk the last mile. She was 82 years old at the time, and she had a severe heart condition. So as the whole crowd, we were walking the last mile of the way, and we had this last sand dune to cross. And my grandmother, her heart, she started getting palpitations, and she said, oh, I need to stop and rest and take a nitroglycerin pill. So we stopped the train of people. And then when grandma felt like she could make it, now here we had walked 3,000 miles and this was our last mile. But in that moment, we 
I couldn't help but think, you know, we've come this far. A few more minutes for my grandmother will be okay. So she took her nitroglycerin pill and we walked up this sand dune and we crested the sand dune and there was the mighty Pacific Ocean, the end of our journey. It was quite an exuberant and and wonderful day and wonderful experience. But after the end of the walk, then starts another whole chapter of life. We were whisked away from living in tents and sleeping on the ground to being put up in the finest hotels in Washington, D.C., where we wrote our article for National Geographic magazine. They, they uh, of course, paid for all that because we had no money. And to our great surprise and to our great joy, we were chosen to be on the cover of the, 19, of the August 1979 National Geographic magazine. Well, that magazine goes all over the world and it opened the windows of the world and the windows of heaven for us. So fame and fortune and everything were now at our doorstep. And were you expecting this at all? Like, why why were you doing this walk? I mean, it wasn't to break records or anything like that, was it? No, not at all. I did not want to go on this walk. <laughs> and, I'll tell, and I'll tell you, I'd never been camping a day in my life. <laughs> okay, but so you weren't an adventurer waiting for this to happen. I, I was an adventurer in spirit yeah. because I love doing things, going places, learning things. But I was not a physical uh, athlete like you are. I was, uh, in fact, my mother always called me prissy because I was very, I'm very feminine and was very prissy. And uh, as a child, she always said I could play in a mud puddle and I wouldn't get dirty. So I, I was not the mountain woman and outdoorsy woman. So this was even a more dramatic transition in, in that respect. But I was working on a master's degree at a seminary. So I've always been a woman of faith. Well, I decided that if I didn't get some kind of a sign from heaven or from God from somewhere that I should marry Peter and go on this walk with him, then I was determined we'd just break up and he could finish his walk across America and we would meet. And if we still felt the same way, then we could go on. So I agreed to go with him one last time to a service. And there were thousands of people in this church. Of course, we got there late. And Peter, at that time, I mean, he was a young man, had nothing but the clothes on his back and his backpack. And his jeans were holy. His tennis shoes were holy. He had kind of long, stringy blonde hair. And there was no place for us to sit except on the front row. So we had to walk through all these hundreds and thousands of people. I was embarrassed to sit on the front row. We were so close to the podium that I could see the wrinkles on the preacher's face. Well, all of a sudden, they push out an old woman in a wheelchair. Her name was Mom Beale. Well, 
where I came from in the Ozarks, women were not preachers. But this old woman, <clears throat> she was 82 years old. They push her up to the microphone, and she has this most angelic, sweet, grandmotherly voice. And she says, I'm going to talk to you today about the story of Abraham and Isaac. And they sent a servant to look for a wife for Isaac. Well, okay, it all sounds interesting, but in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is it. I'm breaking up with Peter, and this is over. She says, and let me tell you the the title of my sermon today. And everybody, back then, there were no phones, no internet, and everybody carried Bibles to church. So you could hear the swoosh of the pages as she said, look up these verses about the story of Abraham and Isaac. And she said, the title of my sermon today is, Will You Go With This Man? <laughs> so, needless to say, I was shocked. I was uh, sort of, it blew my mind. In the context of that moment, how could she have known mm. this moment in my history and that that was the sermon for me? So I felt like it was sort of God pointing his finger at me and saying, will you go? The choice is yours. Will you go? Well, I said yes. And that began the long, thrilling, exciting, dangerous, adventurous heartbreaking journey and filled with the fullness of life, all that life has to offer from uh, meeting wonderful people across America and hearing their stories and staying in their homes and listening, eating, eating at their tables, listening to their lives to uh, fame and fortune. Not that I had, that was not the end game or the end goal, but but it was as though the windows of heaven opened and everything we touched turned to gold. We bought a beautiful farm in Middle Tennessee. I ended the walk two months pregnant with our first child. We had two more children. So we had everything that the world seeks. We had fame. We had fortune. We had a beautiful family. We had a beautiful farm. Everything except behind closed doors, my marriage was crumbling. You know, this happens to a lot of people who have overnight fame or success or who are just celebrities. But there are many traps and many pitfalls when when you enter that world. And so I found out that there had been other women which crushed my heart and my life. And eventually I had to file for divorce. So I had to start life over with three little children and um, basically from nothing because I was not the focal point of our walk. I was an appendage of his. So I really wasn't the sought after author 
or the star. And actually, that was the way I wanted it because I never sought to be front and center. Mm. That's why I've been silent for 40 years. I did not want to write this book. I did not want to go back and 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 uh, uh, relive all of the stories, the joys, the sorrows. But in 2016, I was at a an event out in Telluride, Colorado, and there was a large group of people around, and some of them were celebrities. One of them was a guy named Aaron Paul. He starred in a big series called Breaking Bad. Another was a, a celebrity named Sophia Bush, and she's she was a star of One Tree Hill and several shows on television. They said to me, Barbara, you should write your story. They'd make a great movie, they said. And of course, I smiled and said, yeah, sure. They probably <laughs> say that to everybody. So another five years passed, and it was my granddaughter. She was seven at the time, and she calls me Yo-Yo. <laughs> not grandmother, not mom, grandmom, but Yo-Yo. She said, Yo-Yo, did you really, did you really truly walk across America? And I knew then that I had to write this book. I had to write this story, not only as a personal legacy, but the story and the takeaways are so much bigger than me. There's so much more there. And maybe you can attest to this since you've read the book. There's so many lessons in life and so many takeaways for the reader that I knew I had to do it. It was it was another one of those moments. Will you write this book? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you did write this book because there's so much in there. Whereas I can't really imagine leaving my life and walking for three years. The heartbreak, the things not going well, the relationship breaks up breakup that's definitely something that I can relate to and yes thank you like w the book that came out after the walk which you co-authored like is that so different is that just about the walk and not such a personal journey because I haven't read that one yes uh the two main books were called a walk across America this was his journey from New York to New Orleans and then the walk west which became an international bestseller and is mm -hmm. a part of the White House Library and sold millions of copies. This book um, is about our walk together from New Orleans to Oregon, but it really focuses more on the people we met and the adventures. It is not, it really doesn't deal in depth with, with our marriage or our relationship or from my voice. So the book that I've just written so long as it's wild is really my memoir, which is my story, how I experienced walking across America, how I experienced growing up as a hillbilly in the Ozarks, and how I experienced rebuilding my life after fame and fortune and then losing it all. Mm. So... It's yes. And also, I suppose going back to those breakups and divorces, 
I mean, you were doing this publicly as well, which just must have added another layer of difficulty to it. We were on the front page of newspapers. Mm. Uh, Once the I filed for divorce and it became public, I mean, it was I had to lock the gate. I had to shut myself off because people from New York to Los Angeles wanted to know what happened. They wanted the gossip. They wanted the scuttle. And of course, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. It was never my intention to uh, harm or expose. These were personal issues that really broke up our home and our marriage. But unfortunately, they're common to millions of people. And I think that's why why others will relate to it. Mm. And how did you get through that time of starting over again? Well, one of the things I learned walking across America was resilience, <laughs> perseverance, taking one step at a time, one mm. day at a time, not getting ahead of yourself, waiting for things to unfold. I think part of my problem and part of every young person's problem is we map out the course of our life and we've got a goal and by golly, we're going to get it. And boy, we just charge ahead. We've got our plans, our way and all this. But uh uh-oh, life happens. (laughs) Things happen. And they don't always and rarely happen the way we plan them in our minds. So in my case, because I had learned, because I came from nothing in the Ozarks, and I had learned living three years on the road to adapt, to change, to take one day at a time, one step at a time, then I faced my future with that kind of foundation taking it one day at a time. That doesn't mean I didn't shed tears and cry and and, um, have many, many uh, frustrating times in the years that followed because I uh, struggled financially. Uh, I I was raising three children alone, and One of my children had special needs at that time, special medical needs. So, uh, and there were lots of court battles and lots of legal issues. But, you know, I'm sure you've heard that saying, this too shall pass. And the hard times do pass. And you do find healing and resiliency and the will to go on. The trap, you just don't want to get stuck in resentment, in vengeance, in retaliation, because you cannot go on with your life if that's where you have parked your mind and your soul. You've got to learn to forgive the injustices in life. Is there anyone who hasn't been treated unfairly? We all have. We've all been treated, we've been rejected, we've been treated unfairly, things are unjust, that's just part of life. And 
When did you learn that lesson about forgiveness? Is this something more recent and through processing with the book or is that something that you've had throughout your life? I think forgiveness and it's, it's forgiveness is such a special gift because it is human nature. If someone offends us, we want to retaliate. We want to hurt them back. And I think forgiveness is something that is contrary to human nature, and we have to learn it. And we learn it over and over and over. It's not a one-time shot. And there will be there will be instances every day of your life where you may need to forgive some tiny offense. Maybe someone cut you off in traffic. Maybe someone uh, was rude to you. Well, you do yourself a favor if you just let that go and just show them some mercy and say, well, they must be having a bad day today. But in the years following uh, the crumbling of my marriage and rebuilding my life, There were many ups and downs, many, many trials, many times that I would shake my fist at heaven and say, this is unfair. I don't deserve this. What have I done wrong? Only to learn that when we go through those hard times, when we when there's no place else to turn, we have to turn, get on our knees and turn to God because we don't have the answers. I don't have the answers. I needed help. So I think that when we learn in this learning process to be resilient, part of that is having a teachable spirit because You've got to learn a new way of living, a new way of forgiving, a new way of looking at life and not just being filled with rage and hate and vengeance and retaliation, but it is a matter of one step at a time, and it might be a little forgiveness, but when you do a little forgiveness, maybe somebody slighted you. That builds on another and another. So it becomes easier and easier to forgive yeah. and to overlook and, and, to, and to go on. Mm. Your, your faith seemed a big part of your life, both when like early in your life um, yeah. and when you're walking, yeah. and now it seems like it is. Has that been tested at any point, or is this something that's been quite constant and a big part of your resilience? I, you know, I think a lot of people, when they have terrible things that happen to them in their life, they lose their faith or they become angry at God. Well, I have had mentors in my life, my grandparents being one of them. My granny traveled to Arkansas by a covered wagon. She scratched a living out of the Ozarks, never had anything more than a cotton dress and a tattered apron. Just poor, hardworking farmers. 
but they were people of faith. They were close to the earth. You've heard that saying, the meek shall inherit the earth. So I had examples in my life that even when tough times come, you just keep on keeping on. You keep your head up. You keep your faith. You just keep going on. So yes, I think this has been a constant through my life. And I've had big, big challenges. But with each one, I have to believe that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. And you mentioned the word destiny in the book. And does that link with your faith? Do you believe that there was a destiny for you to live this life? And oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I believe that each person has a purpose, a plan, and a destiny to fulfill. And it's not going to be tiptoeing through the roses. You will have mountaintop experiences. You will have valleys. You will have joys and you will have sorrows. This is truly the destiny of every person. But how you go through the mountains and the valleys, that's where you want to hang on to your beliefs and to your faith. And yes, I do believe this was my destiny. And I have no, I live with no regrets. I'm a woman who has a happy heart. I have a happy mind. I have a happy soul. And I wake up every morning thanking God for another day, another reason to live, another purpose. Just being on your podcast is such a blessing to me. I don't know who is out there listening that might be encouraged by my stories or by this podcast today, but I trust that there there will be. Mm. It's such a joy to speak to you. I was I was trying to imagine when of your walk and just this twenty year old going off on this walk and then seeing your hearing your family coming to meet you I just thought they must be meeting somebody completely different to who set off on that walk because of everything that you went through like not just the terrain and weather but really that relationship and learning about yourself like did you feel a changed person and do you because I suppose I'd be tempted to think, well, what happened if you hadn't gone on that walk? Who would you have been then? What life would you have lived? I know it's hypothetical. But but yeah, what changes came about because of the walk? And, and what did you find out about yourself? I Well, first of all, we're all changing. Mm. Every day we're changing. We go from one season of life to another, to another, to another. But at that time, I was a young, uh, adventurous um A young woman, I loved excitement, but I had many prejudices in my life, in my mind, prejudices against rich people. I thought they all were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. I had prejudices against people who were not like me. I grew up in the Ozarks. We were poor. I had prejudices against, um, well, for example, I didn't really know anything about the Japanese-American people, but the last 
Christmas that we were on the walk, we spent that Christmas in the home of a Japanese family. And this 70-year-old woman with gray hair was on her knees washing my road-weary feet. This was on Christmas Day. And her name was Tishkoto. And we had been invited into their home for that Christmas. And it was, I was so fascinated with her because as a young girl during World War II, her entire family had been sent to a camp in Idaho because president had the president had ordered all Japanese Americans to be sent to camps because we didn't trust them because of World War II and they had bombed Pearl Harbor. So here was this woman who had lived in a camp, a, basically a concentration camp here in the United States. She was not bitter. She was kind. She had the sweetest presence about her. She was washing my feet. And as I sat there and was taken up in my own thoughts, I could not help but think, she's she's a human being just like I'm a human being. My prejudices just, it was like the scales fell off of my eyes all across America about the people we met and the prejudices that I held in my life. And I ended the walk, whether you were rich or poor, black or white or whatever color you were, I ended the walk realizing we all have the same red blood in our veins. And we're all just human beings trying to do the best we can on this earth in the context of our lives and circumstances. Mm. So yes, I was a changed person. I was a more mature, let's say awake person. But my parents didn't really realize all the changes in me because I didn't even realize all the changes in me at that time. I continue after all these years learning and gleaning the truths and lessons from those three years of walking across America and all that they taught me and prepared me as I have faced all the changes and the challenges in life. And do you believe that they did help prepare you for, for what came next? Oh, my goodness, yes. Mm. yes. It was a different kind of suffering, a different, I wasn't, my, my feet weren't covered in blisters and I wasn't, didn't feel like my body had been hammered uh, from physical strain and, and, and walking all those miles under that heavy weight. It was a, a different kind of suffering. It was a suffering in the heart and in the mind and in the emotions. But you know what? There's not a person listening that hasn't suffered, mm. whether it's physically, mentally, or emotionally. It's common to all of us. But we hope to find somewhere deep within us that resiliency that we need to make it another day, make it through the next hour, the next day, the next month. And we can, because there is a future and a better future waiting for you. 
That's so hopeful after all you've been through. Later on in the book, it looked like you still continued to travel and see other areas of the world. And was this something that has been a theme in your life and something that you go back to? Yes, I think I'm just, oh, I don't know if I'm a gypsy, but I'm I'm definitely an adventurer and an explorer. And and once I made a big um, property deal and, and had the assets, had the money, I began to travel the world. I've been, uh, you know, I've been to Africa. I've <laughs> I've been to the tip of South America. I've been I've been to the United Kingdom. I've been to Ireland. I've been to Paris. I've been to, you know, I've been all over Europe. Um, but the book ends, as you will remember, my oldest son. Got, caught this adventurous spirit and he bicycled from Oregon where his dad and I finished the walk all the way to the tip of South America. He ended up writing a book which became a New York Times bestseller. It's called To Shake the Sleeping Self. So I had flown to the tip of South America to meet him when he finished his his transcontinental bicycle trip and so so did uh sophia and bridget two girls so at the end of his journey we decided we would climb torres del Paine there in uh is it chile or argentina chile and um so i didn't realize what i was getting myself into I mean, I was thinking I'm, I'm, you know, 30 years old like the rest of all these people, and yet I'm already a grandmother. Well, so it was supposed to be a six-hour trip up and back. I could do that. I could hike that. But unbeknownst to me, at this time of the year, you know, it doesn't get dark down there in December until like 11 o'clock at night. So we started off. At noon that day, thinking we'd be back by six or seven o'clock that night. But oh my goodness, these are sheer granite boulders, straight up, rushing rivers, hanging bridges, crossing rivers. It's a treacherous, treacherous trek. Well, and high winds. This was the windy season when the winds come across the Pacific to the Atlantic. So that whole part of of Patagonia is just under high wind alert. So it was like walking in a hurricane the whole time. Well, it's getting dark and it's starting to rain. So I'm almost to the top, but at the very top, the grand finale was to see this emerald crystal green lake that was settled in the middle of these granite spears at the top of this of these mountains i was it was getting too dark and so i told jed and the girls you all go on take lots of pictures i i i probably was maybe a a fourth of a mile or half a mile from the top but it was getting too dark and we had to turn around and had 5 miles to walk back in the dark 
coming down these sheer cliffs, narrow trails, high winds, sleet, rain, no light, no rescue teams, no rangers, no stars in the sky, nothing. Well, the girls went on ahead. We told them, you all go on. We'll catch up. So we're about probably a mile from the lodge, and it is so cold, bitter cold, icy. It was sleet hammering my face. And here I'm thinking this is the first time in my life I thought I'm not going to make it. I may die out here. I cannot. I was I was worried I had a frostbite, hypothermia, whatever. And so Jed was ahead of me feeling his way as we would cross these hanging bridges and hope we didn't fall off in a rushing river and sliding down these boulders and trying to find our way back to the lodge. I couldn't see Jed. I couldn't hear him. And I started yelling his name, Jed, Jed. He didn't answer. Jed. And all I might have have lost him. Did he fall? Did he disappear? Where is he? All of a sudden, his cell phone light, he punches the flashlight right in my eyes and says, Mom, you got a problem? (laughs) I could have killed him on the spot. Well, we made it. It was about two in the morning when we finally made it to the lodge. And I thought the book ends with this wonderful story because I said to myself, I don't know, this this may be the very last thing this old hillbilly does. And I took a drink of a hot toddy, which had some <laughs> Jack Daniels whiskey in it. And it warmed my throat and down my esophagus, down into my stomach and my body was warm and then I said to myself nah (laughs) tomorrow's another day (laughs) oh your book is full of so many beautiful stories out in nature and and yeah it seems like your children have been inherited that adventurous spirit (laughs) yes How has the reaction to the book been? And was this a story that you'd shared with your children? Did, was, was there any surprises in, them, in there for them? I would not have written this book without my children's support because mm. their father's in this book. Mm. And at the end of the day, he's their father, will always be their father. So I, I really, that was the hardest part to write because I did not want to bring uh, any vindictiveness or any harm to him. But I did, I I have totally have the support. You ask about the response. The response has been phenomenal. It has a 4.6 rating on Amazon. I have endorsements from people like Dolly Parton, Hilary Swank, uh, Connie Britton, Jedediah Jenkins, my son, of course he had to, (laughs) but it's the readers. The readers have been sending and posting the most wonderful reviews. I couldn't put it down or it was, I, I read it in one sitting or it was just captivating. Mm -hmm. In fact, in the industry, there are two publications that you hope you get a good review. One is the Library Journal. The Library Journal said, if you liked 
Tara Westover's book called Educated, or if you liked Cheryl Strayed's book called Wild, you'll be captivated by this book. Uh, Publishers Weekly said that this book was a cinematic sweep and engrossing. So from the industry folks to the celebrities to the readers, I've been getting wonderful reviews. And you have to understand, I did not write this for fame or fortune. I've been there. <laughs> and it's it wasn't not, all, it was cracked up to be. <laughs> no, no. This was because I feel like that finger pointed at me and said, will you write this book? <laughs> and there was so much in the book that that I loved. I really loved the presence of your grandmothers and these strong women going back in time. And yes, did you feel strength from from knowing about them? And is that something that we can draw resilience on? Is this lineage of strong, not necessarily women, but I love the the sound of the women in your family, um, but strong relatives and ancestors that have had these hard lives before us? Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the problems in today's culture. Young women don't have older women or mentors Mm. to show them how to be resilient, how to survive the hard times. Let me tell you one quick story in West Texas. And a barren land, this rancher and his wife pulled up in a pickup truck, gave us some water, invited us into their home. Their names were Homer and Ruby Martin. They were ranchers, dry farming. They raised cotton and wheat, had 400 acres. And they were older at that time, lived at a little three-room, very modest home that they had built back in the 1930s. One day, we stayed with them a few days, rested up, sat at their table and ate, just had wonderful conversations and stories Ruby came to Texas in a covered wagon. She was the oldest of 13 children. They were so poor, they ate water gravy and lived in tents. Well, we had looked at a map of the United States, and we were just in Texas, and I still had to walk all the way to Oregon. And Ruby saw the expression on my face, just the panic, the alarm, the overwhelming feeling that I had at that moment. So we were sitting on her porch and she was asking me about how I felt. And so reluctantly, I shared some of my thoughts and concerns and, and I wanted to complain a little bit about my marriage, but she didn't, She didn't have anything to say about that. All she did was challenge me. She said, oh, shoot, Barbara. She said, you can do this. Why, she said, you ain't lived till you've picked cotton all day long in the hot Texas sun for 25 cents, 100 pounds. Why, you got all this fancy equipment. Why, good Lord, shoot, girl, you can do this. This walking across America, it ain't nothing. Well, that was a true pioneer telling me, Barbara, you can do this. Mm. So I had mentors and strong 
women across America who who imparted their endurance and their courage and their wisdom to me. And yes, they helped me walk across America. I mean, one of the female characters, well, in your book, when you wrote about your mum, perhaps that didn't come across as such a supportive influence in your life. And I just wondered how, how that was reflecting back on your childhood. My mother was a redheaded, beautiful, temperamental, artistic, hothead spitfire. She was, there was a spark and a charisma about her. But she was very temperamental, and she was the baby of six boys. So she grew up being catered to by her parents and her brothers. So when she had children, she had three, my brother, myself, and my little sister. When she had three children, she was only 17 when she got married. And Uh, I think, had her first child when she was 20 years old. I think in her mind, she was robbed of her youth because she had three kids to take care of. They had to work like dogs to Mm. survive in the Ozarks. My dad was a mechanic. My mother was a homemaker. We didn't have much, and but mother was very creative very temperamental and very impatient. And she was very impatient with me. And as I look back on it, she was very critical of me and not what I would call supportive. But I'm not so sure. It wasn't because she didn't love me. Mm. I do believe she loved me deeply. I think she was doing the best she could. But I think She saw in me a lot of things that she could not control or harness or maybe even guide because I was a big dreamer. She would say, Barbara, get your head out of the clouds. I was always a dreamer. And I think in some ways I threatened her and she didn't know how to handle me other than to try to harness me and keep me under wraps. So that's in my mind, that's how I reconcile how she was as a mother. Mm. I think it, it goes back to what you were saying at the start about we're all just humans doing our best, aren't we? Yes. Mm. Yes. And she was doing her best. My mother only had an eighth grade education and she was, she was, you know, stuck raising three kids with, she didn't have options or opportunities. All she really had was her art. And she was so artistic. She painted, she created things. What little we had was beautiful. Mm. And so, uh, but she was, she was a frustrated artist. There's so much of your story of the walk that you went on seemed to be in such a 
a time and place that just doesn't exist anymore. This is before technology and before so much changed in the world. And it just feels like it's that slice of time that it just wouldn't be anywhere near the same if somebody did that journey again this time. No, no, because Mm. I can remember in order to stay in touch with my parents, we would write postcards and mail them when we would come into a little town just so they'd have an idea where they were, where we were. And they would follow along with a, with a map at home about where we were and where they thought we would be. Mm. We would call if we found a phone booth or we happened to be in a little town and stayed in a motel so we could get a bath and sleep in a bed for a night. And so, yes, it was a totally different world then than it is now. I, I mean, I wouldn't do it today. The world, I think, is too, um, um, the culture is too different. People are too angry and too, they've lost their moorings. They've lost their roots. They've lost the sense, the value of life. You know, how many murders do we watch a day on television or on the news? Or so people are keyed up and they're tense and they're and they're very short fused. So I'm not sure that we would have found the reception or the grace or the invitation into people's lives that we found back in the 1970s. Mm. What do you think is the biggest lesson that it taught you about resilience? All your life experiences. I'm not just talking about about the walk. I would say to learn to wait, to learn to wait, and to find that sacred space where you can be alone and you can communicate with your creator and wait for guidance, direction, wait, because problems in life are not solved instantly. It's like untangling a web. And things take time. And if you get ahead of it, you can actually interfere with the solution. So I think resilience is not just this knee-jerk reaction to everything. It's learning to step back, take a deep breath, wait, and spend some time in your quiet place, in your sacred place, and just wait for that inner voice to give you some kind of direction. And that is so contrary to everything in the world because every second of every day, it's hurry up, do this, do this, do this, do this. Instant, instant gratification, instant response. So what I'm saying is contrary to everything, our, our, our natural bent in the world. But if you're asking me what I learned, that's what I learned. And actually, that was one of my favorite lines from the book that I wrote out was that 
that learning to take life one day at a time or one step at a time. And I think you said to get into that natural rhythm. And I just thought that was, yeah, that was something that was really beautiful when you wrote, wrote that. Yes, there is a rhythm mm. and it is getting into that rhythm. And I mean, I understand young mothers and young couples, you're, you're working to survive. You're so busy You've got children, you've got jobs, you've got careers. There's a million things coming at you. But you must make an appointment with yourself mm. for this quiet time. And how do you spend your days now? What's happening? It sounds like you've done thousands of miles on a book tour, so you're not sitting. Yes, yes I just finished a 6,000 mile. <laughs> not, <trip>. on <laughs> not on foot. Not on foot. But we did pretty much cover the route from New Orleans out west uh, and stopped in towns, you know, in cities along the way. And we had 14 author book events. And, um, oh, I so enjoyed meeting readers and being at those events. I just loved it. Um, So how do I spend my time? Believe it or not, I'm very busy. But I try to do something creative every day, even if it's just to do make a bouquet of flowers on mm. my table. I try to do something that gives me joy in my heart. And I try to do something that is going to be um, an encouragement or lift someone else. In fact, when we get through here, I'm going to have lunch with a dear friend who's going through a very, very difficult time. One of her nephew is uh, in his last stages of cancer, and the family is really, it's, it's a really tough time. So I'm going to lunch with her to just sit and listen and be her friend. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that about your friend, but it did remind me of after your divorce and you had those women around you that seemed like they were some real special group. I think there were 12 women that you mentioned. Yes. And yes. it's so important, isn't it, that we do ask for support or lean into support. And I think when I started this podcast, resilience was very much a focus of this personal resilience that we had to get it all done ourselves without asking for help. But I'm obviously now changed, completely changed my mind on that. And actually part of resilience is being with others, asking for help and leaning in when we need the support. Uh, some of Some of my very challenging years as my children were growing up was uh, raising three children, one with special needs, one was uh, very rebellious. One was, uh, you know, very exceptional. And so anyway, I had all these diverse children to raise and I knew I could not find the help I needed just running out there and finding another man just couldn't do it. You know, it's too complicated. Blended families are difficult. So I started a group called 12 women and 12 women is patterned after the 12 disciples. And I thought, you know, they changed the whole world. So what if I got 12 women together and 
we came together around faith and support, and we would have a topic to discuss. We would discuss it and share and be a support system for each other. Well, we did that in my home every week for two years, and it was fabulous. Then we met every month. Then we met every six months. So we're now going on. That was back in 1998. So that tells you. We have lost two of our original members have passed away. But the rest of us are still in touch and still uh, support each other. So having this, that support. But I will say that you have to back up just a step. You cannot have this support system if you're not willing to receive it. Mm. You must have a teachable spirit and be open to receiving the support and the help from others. And we all need it. We all need it. And, um, you know, it's a proven fact. People who have good social systems, good relationships, friendships, live longer and they're healthier. So for your listeners out there, I would encourage you, make sure you've got good friends and a good support system around you. Yeah. And is that something that you had to learn? I'm just thinking of your background, like your upbringing, you seem to be so independent. And then going through the journey, the walk, and like you said, you almost living a different life to the public one and the one that other people were seeing. So I can imagine that becoming that you're very self-reliant and, and maybe opening up could have been quite hard for people, for you to open up to people. Actually, no, I am an extrovert and I am very, uh, I'm, I'm very transparent. I think you could probably say now I'm discerning and I I am I try to be very um be a critical thinker and discerning so I'm not just loosey goosey but if I am in a safe place with people I trust I'm very open. Oh okay. <laughs> Obviously speaking more from personal <laughs> experience <laughs> than than what I picked up in your book. <laughs> Oh, and what's what's this one bit of advice that you can give to people when they're really stuck in that horrible crisis situation of their whole life falling apart? We don't need to go and walk across America, do we, to to find out who we are and change things? Like no. when you were, what what can we offer people for for those people that are starting again and having their whole world having to be rebuilt? Well, first of all. My world has fallen apart more than once, so I know I'm speaking from experience. But I, I would want them to know that, number one, they are not alone. They are not the first and only person to have their lives blow up, fall apart, and to be left in pieces. This is happening whether they can see it or not. This is happening all around them. Other people's lives have great challenges, and there are other people, people they may know, whose lives are falling apart as well. 
What you don't want to do is have a knee-jerk reaction when your world is falling apart. You don't want to make instant decisions. You don't want to hurry up and fill, try to put everything back together or fill the void with, with the wrong people or the wrong things. So again, I come back to what I said earlier. You need to wait, even though it's painful, and even though you may be bleeding, you want to you want to catch your breath and wait. But help does come. There are people who will help you. There are people who care. You are not alone. That's the first thing I would say. And don't think that you're the only person on the planet that this has happened to. It hasn't. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy to speak to you, Barbara. And also thank you for your book because it was so beautiful. And really, I read it in one sitting as well. (laughs) I couldn't put it down. (laughs) By the way, it is also on Audible. It's an audio book and I read it. Oh, fantastic. I I have had people tell me, Barbara, I read the book and it was wonderful. But she said, I am so caught up in hearing it. So I want your listeners to know that it's also, it's everywhere books are sold. It's on Amazon. Uh, It's on Audible, Kindle. uh, And you can go to my website, barbarajojenkins.com. And that's a good Southern name, Barbara Jo. Oh, it's fantastic. B-A-R-B-A-R-A-J-O, BarbaraJoJenkins.com. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Barbara Jenkins Writer. So in that way, you can kind of keep up with, you know, what's going. By the way, just this past week, I've had two film and movie scouts (gasps) contact me about. Wow. So who knows? Who knows? We'll see. Who do you want to play you in the film, Barbara? I'm too old. No, 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 you can pick any actress that you like. I think Hilary Swank's going to try and get a role in it. (laughs) No, I'm just, uh, I mean, the the book has been birthed. It's out there. And I just want to see it reach the people who need to Mm. read it. And I think, I think it, um, I think everyone who, who will take the time to read it will be deeply moved and encouraged. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think everybody will have a connection with it. It's about human relationships. It's about life. It's about something that we, we're all living, um, even if we're not, not, not out doing extraordinary things. It's about, it's about life, isn't it? Yes, yes. Well, good luck with that. I'm very excited to hear that there might be film or TV or something <laughs> happening in the future. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. And yes, it's yes. just been such a privilege to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you. I would ask you and any of your listeners who get the book and read it, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on my website. And I would love it if you would go on Amazon or Goodreads and leave a review because that inc- that helps the algor- algorithm and helps other people to find it <clears throat> and to believe that it's really good. You know, I can say it's good because I wrote it, 
but it doesn't matter. What matters is what you, the reader, think. Mm, yeah. And I guess it could be quite interesting that we all take what we need from it or what we want from it yeah. when it's such a personal story to you. But obviously, when I was talking, I was like, oh, I like this bit and I took this bit. And yeah. it's different well, for that's, everybody. That's why when, when I felt, why, when I wrote it, why... I felt I finally agreed to because there are so many messages mm. and it's bigger than me. Yeah. It's yeah. bigger than me. I'll put all those links in the show notes and thank you so much for your time, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you. I've so enjoyed this. I love your accent. <laughs> I love your accent. <laughs> I don't have one. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.